You're listening to a sermon podcast from Lawson Heights Alliance Church. May God bless you as you listen. Find your way to your Bible and uh, find your way to Ezekiel 25. Last week, we obviously ended with chapter 24, which is about Ezekiel's prophecies about the fall of Jerusalem, which happened in 586 B.C. Probably if there's a date to anchor in your memory about anything Old Testament, the date 586 B.C., the destruction and fall of Jerusalem and the temple, would be one of those dates, okay? Ezekiel has predicted it, but uh, between chapters 24 and 33, the exiles that are in Babylon don't know what the outcome has been yet. Ezekiel's prophesied about it, but other stuff is going on, and so they're just not really aware of where things are at right now in Jerusalem. But what falls into that section are, those, are these oracles for the nations in chapters 25 to 32. An oracle is a prophetic utterance of judgment, in this case, against a particular nation, seven of them in fact, and all of these seven nations will be attacked by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon just like Jerusalem has been. Now, you get the first four nations in chapter 25, Ammon, Moab, Edom, and Philistia. Then, in chapters 26 to 28, you get the oracles against Tyre and a bit about Sidon. And then, in chapters 29 to 32, you get a whole lot about Egypt. So, let's look at chapter 25, Ezekiel 25. We're going to begin reading verse 1 to 7. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against the Ammonites and prophesy against them. Say to them, hear the word of the sovereign Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Because you said, aha, over my sanctuary when it was desecrated and over the land of Israel when it was laid waste and over the people of Judah when they went into exile. Therefore, I'm going to give you to the people of the east as a possession They will set up their camps and pitch their tents among you. You They will eat your fruit and drink your milk. I will turn Rabbah into a pasture for camels and Ammon into a resting place for sheep. Then you will know that I am the Lord. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. Because you have clapped your hands and stamped your feet, rejoicing with all the malice of your heart against the land of Israel, therefore I will stretch out my hand against you and give you as plunder to the nations. I will wipe you out from among the nations and exterminate you from the countries. I will destroy you and you will know that I am the Lord. The Ammonites were liking the defeat of Israel a little too much. The aha in chapter th- in verse 3 is kind of like a high five and all right, rejoicing that the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple has occurred. So now the same thing is going to happen to you, Yahweh says. And notice that Yahweh gives the reason, verse 7, then you will know that I am the Lord. Now that... Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. Each of these, uh, these Ammonites and the other nations each mocked Israel and mocked the Lord. Basically saying that, Israel, or that Yahweh's inheritance in Israel is now defunct like the rest of the nations as they gave themselves over to other gods, the gods of these nations. In fact, as we read in chapters before, Israel's idolatry even outpaced that of their neighboring nations. 
If you're familiar at all with what scholars call cosmic geography of the Bible and the three divine rebellions that have taken place in the Old Testament, then, then you may well consider Deuteronomy 32 and the edict there in, in keeping with what we are reading here, where after Babel, the Lord divided up the nations according to the sons of God, that is, the fallen members of Yahweh's divine counsel. We've talked about that in the past. And the Lord gave these nations over to these fallen council members, these lesser gods, who then opposed the Lord and his people. But Israel would be Lord forever. And that's what these remaining chapters are all about. Let me read Deuteronomy 32, verses 7 to 9. I'm reading out of the ESV. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, that's at Babel, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted inheritance or heritage. Then bump down to verse 43. This is what will happen. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. And now 800 years later, after Babylon, Ezekiel 25, 32, Yahweh is putting the gods of the nations and the nations they rule over on notice. Now he's going to repay them for opposing Israel and his plan for them. Interesting point of fact, and it will become more apparent and important when we get to chapter 32. But each of the nations that are under consideration here in chapter 25 had Nephilim descendants in them. Going all the way back to Deuteronomy 2 and 3. You may be familiar with that from the Genesis 6-4 account. Where we are told that, that these giant heroes of old, men of renown, once walked the earth. They were the unholy offspring of the sons of God. Those fallen divine council members who procreated with the daughters of men. They were in the world before and after the flood, we're told there. And as we will see, when the Israelites spied on the land of Canaan, for instance... They reported back to Moses that there were giants there. The Nephilim were there in the promised land. So these beings had been around for quite some time until they were finally destroyed by David, finally eliminated, and their opposition to Israel stopped. And all of that is implicated here in chapter 25 with these nations as the Lord talks about settling the score of this, this ancient score of the nations and the gods that they serve. The next three chapters, chapters 26, 27, and 28, are all about the nation of Tyre. Ammon, Moab, Edom, and Philistia represented nation-states that kind of surrounded the borders of Israel and Judah. Geographically, Tyre was just to the north of Israel and on the coast of the Mediterranean. In the ancient Near Eastern world, this would have been Phoenician territory. The name Tyre in the Hebrew comes from the Hebrew word for rock. And that is exactly what Tyre was, a massive rock island situated about a kilometer off the coast of Phoenicia, off the coast of the Mediterranean. Ezekiel describes it uniquely as a nation whose domain was on the high seas, 27 verse 4, and surrounded by the seas, 27 verse 32. So militarily, it was probably the most protected location that any kingdom could be. 
Not only that, but it was a seafaring empire. They had a very strong navy. So to suggest to anyone living in the ancient Near East at that time, to suggest that Tyre would fall to an enemy, it would be like, yeah, right, that'll never happen. They are untouchable. But Ezekiel 26 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar would besiege Tyre. Look at verse 20, chapter 26. We'll look at verses 7 to 14. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. From the north I am going to bring against Tyre Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings, with horses and chariots, with horsemen and a great army. He will ravage your settlements on the mainland with the sword. He will set up siege works against you, build a ramp up to your walls, and raise his shields against you. He will direct the blows of his battering rams against your walls and demolish your towers with his weapons. His horses will be so many that they will cover you with dust. Your walls will tremble at the noise of the war horses, wagons, and chariots when he enters your gates as men enter a city whose walls have fallen broken through. The hooves of his horses will trample all your streets. He will kill your people with the sword and your strong pillars will fall to the ground. They will plunder your wealth and loot your merchandise. They will break down your walls and demolish your fine houses and throw your stones, timbers, and rubble into the sea. I will put an end to your noisy songs and the music of your harps will be no more. I will make you a bare rock and you will become a place to, finish, to spread fishnets. You will never be rebuilt, for I, the Lord, have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. But you know what? After 13 years of siege warfare from 586 B.C. to 573 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar was never able to finally take control of Tyre, at least militarily anyway. He could only get through to the mainland fortresses. Never across the gulf to that island place. And so the Tyrians negotiated a surrender because cut off from the land of their mainland, they needed to develop a treaty. And so that's what they did with Nebuchadnezzar as described and revealed in Ezekiel 29. But all of that changed when Alexander the Great conquers them 200 years later in 332 B.C. At first he tried to conquer them by building a kilometer long road from the mainland to that island. You can read all about this on Wikipedia. Then he set up two mobile siege towers with catapults and armed men to move gradually closer and closer to the island fortress. They were going to pummel the city with enormous rocks, kind of like a Lord of the Rings kind of scene. But the Tyrians were prepared. They developed their own counterattacks and built their own towers and catapults. But, in their, but their navy was their greatest defense. Alexander didn't have a navy, well, at least not much of one. And so he made alliances with the Persians and with the Greeks, and that's how he took Tyre. This time, Tyre was done. Again, like the other nations in chapter 25, Tyre's crime was that she gloated over the fact that Jerusalem and her temple were destroyed. Yahweh's inheritance in Israel was now like the rest of the nations because they had given themselves to the gods of those nations. In other words, <laughs> Yahweh's plan didn't work. Now he has to disinherit Israel like he disinherited us at Babel. Yahweh is now without an inheritance. Ha <laughs> ha, finally. But there's more to siege warfare here and earthly conquest. Chapter 26, verses 19 to 21. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I will make you a desolate city. 
like cities no longer inhabited, and I will bring the ocean depths over you and its vast waters cover you. Then I will bring you down with those who go down to the pit to the people of long ago. I will make you dwell in the earth below as in, in ancient ruins and with those who go down to the pit, and you will not return and take, or take your place in the land of the living. I will bring you to a horrible end, and you will be no more. You will be sought, but you will never again be found, declares the sovereign Lord. Phrases like, go down to the pit, to the people of long ago, I will make you dwell in the earth below, that should remind you of something. These are phrases of the Hebrew Old Testament underworld, otherwise known as Sheol, the abode of the dead, the abyss, a watery place within the earth is what is made up of Israel's cosmology. This is the place where all the dead go, both the righteous dead and the unrighteous dead, and it's a place of conscious existence. Listen to Psalm 16, verses 9 to 11, as David says, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. In Jewish theology, the righteous Jew always had the hope that God would one day rescue them from the pit in a future resurrection of sorts. But for the unrighteous, those, were not, those who were not Israel, they would never escape. But now, it's being used here of Tyre, saying, this is your destiny, Tyre, and there is no hope of deliverance from it for you. And in chapter 27, we get the lament of Tyre. This gets a little tough. Verses 1 to 9. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take up a lament concerning Tyre. Say to Tyre, situated at the gateway to the sea, merchant of peoples on the coast. This is what the sovereign Lord says. You say, Tyre, I am perfect in beauty. Your domain was on the high seas. Your builders brought your beauty to perfection. They made all your timbers of juniper and sinir. They took a cedar from Lebanon to make a mast for you. Of oaks from Bashan, they made your oars. Of cypress wood from the coasts of Cyprus, they made your deck adorned with ivory. Fine uh, embroidered linen from Egypt was your sail and served as your banner. Your awnings were of blue and purple from the coasts of Elisha. Men from, of Sidon and Arva, Arvad uh, were your oarsmen, your craftsmen. Tyre were abroad, uh, were, were abroad as your sailors. Veteran craftsmen of Byblos were on board as shipwriters to caulk your seams. All the ships of the sea and their sailors came alongside to trade for your wares. As verse 9 reminds us, Tyre was a seafaring people. So this is a lament in the form of a poem that casts Tyre as a ship. It's picturing Tyre as a ship that does trade all the way up and down the Mediterranean coast, all the way down to Egypt, all along the northern coast of the Mediterranean and what is today modern Turkey. In other words, those who did trade with Tyre have to have close access to a port on the Mediterranean. And because of this, she is rich and self-sufficient and became proud. 
And then in verse 25 to 36, Tyre gets shipwrecked, so to speak. This is an obvious analogy to her destruction that we just read about in 26. Now, there was something in these laments about Tyre that if you've read any amount of end times books or listened to any end times teachers, you might be itching for me to address. Some of your ears may have perked up when you heard some of the names mentioned in chapter 27, especially verses 13 and 14 like Tubal and Meshech and, and Beth to, to Garma. That's because for those who don't know, these represent important end times locations for some popular end times timelines and teachers. Along with uh, chapters 38 and 39, which we'll get to in about a month, these cities are said to direct us to a future Antichrist coming out of Russia. Listen, I'll just go briefly to Ezekiel 39, verses 1 to 2. Son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, Gog, chief priest of Meshech and Tubal. I will turn you around and drag you along. I will bring you from the far north and send you against the mountains of Israel. Meshech and Tubal were the sons of Japheth, one of the three sons of Noah who survived the flood. Genesis 10. Basically, or biblically, the land of Meshech is closely associated with Tubal here. Prophecy, popular prophecy teachers today explain that the region of Meshech is probably located north of the Black Sea. You might see that up here on the map. Most say Meshech is modern-day Moscow. And Tubal, they say, is Tobolsk, which is also in Russia. But scholars... And biblical archaeology know where these cities are to know where these cities were, and they're not anywhere in Russia. Moscow is not Meshech, and Tubal is not Tobolsk, as a majority of prophecy teachers suggest. Moscow is 1,200 kilometers from the Black Sea. That's the closest port, not not even close to the Mediterranean. And Tobolsk is over 3,000 kilometers away. Neither are connected by a coastline of any kind, much less with Tyre on the Mediterranean. Meshech sort of sounds like Moscow, if you kind of hold your tongue right. And Tubal sort of sounds like Tobolsk, probably more so. But just because something has a similar spelling or sound in English does not mean they're the same thing in the Bible. According to the prophecy in Ezekiel 27, these places need to have access to the Mediterranean. In, order, in other words, to the ships of Tyre. They need to have access to maritime trading, and you don't have that with Russia. Besides, they have to be within Babylonian territory, and just look at any map, Russia never was. So for prophecy teachers, to keep drudging up this old Cold War conspiracy theory is not biblical. Because it ignores everything we know about maps and geography of the ancient Near East, and it ignores Ezekiel chapter 27, which we'll get back to again when we get to chapter 39 to, uh, 38 and 39, when we talk about the Antichrist and where he actually comes from. And chapter 27 will be brought in again to prove it. The point of chapter 25 to 27 is... All you nations that gloated when Nebuchadnezzar came in and besieged and destroyed Jerusalem, well, guess what? The same guy that did that to Israel and Jerusalem will do the same thing to you. And when he is done with you, then you will know that I am the Lord. Ezekiel 28 is now the prophecy against the prince of Tyre. Listen to the words, verses 1 to 10. 
the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to the prince of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is proud and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. You are indeed wiser than Daniel. No secret is hidden from you. By your wisdom and your understanding, you have made wealth for yourself and have gathered gold and silver into your treasuries. By your great wisdom in your trade, you have increased your wealth and your heart has become proud in your wealth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you make your heart like the heart of a God, therefore behold, I will bring foreigners upon you the most ruthless of all nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom and defile your splendor. They shall thrust you down into the pit, and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas. You will still say, I am a God in the presence of those who kill you, though you are but a man and no God in the hands of those who slay you. You shall die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of foreigners, in other words, by more uncircumcised people. For I have spoken, declares the Lord God. Clearly, this chapter is about the prince of Tyre, a human being, a human king. But could it also be analogizing with something or someone else? Some say yes, some say no. I'm going to say yes. And I would imagine probably most of you will agree with me because you, you see here this divine rebellion, this divine rebel language here like I am a God, I sit in the seat of the gods in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of a God. To sit in the seat of the gods, that's again divine counsel language. And things like verse 8, they shall thrust you down into the pit and you shall die the death of the slain in the heart of the seas. That is language again of the underworld, the pit, the sea, the chaos, the sheol, the abyss. And there's more of this language. Look at verses 11 to 17 of chapter 28. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, uh, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings, sand, your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you you were, uh, I placed you. You were on the high mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till the unrighteous was found in you. Till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade you were filled with violence and in your midst you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub. From the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. Sound like anyone you know? Again, for sure, this passage is speaking directly of a human king, the king of Tyre. But there are two added theories of sort of 
that are sort of an analogy of who this king represents. Some say that the Prince of Tyre is being compared to Adam in Eden. As being a created thing, a, an, in, the, in the image of God, an image bearer of the Lord Almighty with, with dominion over the earth. That sounds like a, a suitable thing, doesn't it? And as such, he was also part of God's new earthly divine council. He, was, he had dominion over all the earth. But while he was in Eden, Adam was never a guardian cherub, as it says in verse 14. Remember the guardian cherubs of Ezekiel's first and second visions? A cherub is not a cute, pudgy little angel that we see in artwork today, nor are they angels. They are different. They are a unique class of heavenly being. A cherub is a divine, semi-divine figure stationed at the boundaries between the sacred heavenly and the secular earthly. And they were surrounding the throne of God to protect his sacred space from contamination. That's what was represented in the tabernacle and in the temple in the most holy place. That was not Adam. He was not a divine guardian cherub. The other view is that the prince of Tyre is being compared to a divine rebel like that of Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14, most of you will know if you've read anything on uh, this divine rebel. It's a judgment against another kind of villain, like the king of Babylon. It, it is the king of Babylon. Uh, verse, chapter 14, verses 12 to 15 in Isaiah. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will, asc I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. You are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Who does that sound like to you? Who have you heard that say about? Satan. Right. I think if you're familiar at all with this, you'll admit that there is a divine rebel in, the in the, this personage of Satan or Lucifer, the son of the dawn, the son of the morning star. This divine being to whom the prince in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 are being analogized with was a member of Yahweh's divine heavenly council, as described in the phrase, from the midst of the stones of fire. That's where he was at. He was there, he was on the mountain of God, which is another uh, divine heavenly council scene. And this divine rebel was destroyed or expelled from the divine council. As, as Ezekiel 28, 17 says, I cast you to the ground. And as Isaiah 14, 15 says, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. For sure, this divine rebel revealed in these two passages is related to the divine rebel, the serpent, in the Garden of Eden in chapter 3 of the book of Genesis. The Garden of God. Well, because Yahweh says so, right? In Ezekiel 28, 13. You were in Eden, the Garden of God. Let me go to the garden scene here for a moment. Verse, chapter 3, verses 14 to 15 of, of Genesis. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust, all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So some messianic overtones there for sure for us. But it's also talking about 
the devil, the divine rebel. So it's not hard to connect Genesis 3 and Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 and say that this is as much about the serpent, the devil, as it is about an earthly king, the king of Tyre. In a similar way that Yahweh will deal with the rebel king of Tyre, the human king, he will also deal with the king of rebels, that is the devil. As you go down, this is what you'll see. The first rebel, the serpent, gets cast, out of, get, gets cast down to the arets, is the Hebrew term there for ground or land. It's also used for the term underworld. In Israelite cosmology, the underworld was associated as a place inside the earth. This is where the realm that was associated with death, as I said earlier. Think about it. When people die, what do you do? You bury them in the ground, right? And they go to the underworld. That's the ancient Near Eastern view. And the, the being who's in charge of the underworld through Israelite uh, cosmology from Genesis 3 was the devil. Genesis 3 says that he was made to eat dust. That's the dust of the earth, right? That's, this is part of his judgment. Ezekiel 28, 17 says, Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you down to the ground. Isaiah 20, uh, 14, 12, 14 to 15 how you have fallen from heaven, O day star, O son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, you say. I will make myself like the most high, you say. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. So instead of being, with, instead of being like the most high or above the stars of God, again, another divine counsel reference, no, from now on, you are going to be like beneath the feet of mortals. You're going to be beneath the ones who you've led astray and destroyed, and now they're going to walk all over you. That's the judgment upon the devil. And this is the point of Ezekiel 28. As much as it is for Tyre, it's also a, a, a prediction for, for the devil. But then we move into Ezekiel 29 to 32. The first of the four chapters declare a series of oracles against Egypt and her pharaoh. As in the case of the oracles against the prince of Tyre, Ezekiel's imagery of, of cosmic non-human forces of divine rebellion continue. And there are still powers that Yahweh still needs to deal with. And he will. He'll bring them down. And in these two chapters, Yahweh's judgment is against the hubris of Egypt. These four chapters. Chapter 29, verses 1 to 6. In the tenth year, in the tenth month, on the twelfth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams, that says, my Nile is my own. I made it for myself. I will put hooks in your jaws and, and make the fish of your streams stick to your scales. And I will draw you up out of the midst of your streams with all the fish of your streams that stick to your scales." I will cast you out into the wilderness and you and all of your fit and all the fish of your streams you shall fall on the open field and not be brought together or gathered to the beasts of the earth and to the birds of the heavens I will bring you as food some pictures there of future uh, revelation stuff right and then all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord 
There's that phrase again. That overarching point of why Yahweh is doing all that he did to Israel and why he's doing all this to the Lord. Then all the inhabitants of Egypt will know that I am the Lord. The reference to Pharaoh is being uh, referred to here as the great dragon or as the NIV translates it, the great monster. It comes from the ancient Near Eastern idea, in other words, the world that Israel lived in, of a primeval chaos that existed in the world or Really, it's, it was anything that opposed the order and the rule of Yahweh. Ezekiel 29 draws on this imagery that the Nile, which was really the source of life for Egypt, is a place that God has his dominion over. And the Pharaoh, who was the one who controlled the waters of the Nile in his own mind, and as so his subjects believed, he is the great monster or dragon. In other words, in other places in the Bible, the words Leviathan and serpent are also used to describe this ultimate chaos agent that works against the plans of God. Listen to Isaiah 27 verse 1. In that day, the Lord with his hand, with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Basically, the whole point here is that the first five, in the first five verses, and really for the rest of chapters 29 to 32, is that Pharaoh is going to get judged, and the people of Egypt are going to get judged along with him. Why? Because it was Yahweh who was in control of the Nile, not Pharaoh, and everything else that mortals needed to survive, that was under Yahweh's control, not Pharaoh's. Not any other god, only Yahweh. And for, is, and for Egypt's part, through the ages, going back as that agent of chaos, opposing Israel and God's plan, God planned to deal with them too. Verse 6, Then all the inhabitants of Egypt shall know that I am the Lord. Chapter 32, the last chapter for today, ends with this final indictment against Egypt. And all the other nations that we've talked about today in chapters 25 to 30 are brought back into the scene to witness Egypt's demise. Look at verse 30, uh, chapter 32, verse 17 to 21. In the twelfth year, in the twelfth month, on the fifteenth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, wail over the multitude of Egypt and send them down. Her and the daughters of majestic nations to the world below, to those who have gone down to the pit. Whom do you surpass in beauty? Go down and be laid to rest with the uncircumcised. They shall fall amid those who are slain by the sword. Egypt is delivered to the sword. Drag her away in all her multitudes. The chief priests shall speak of them with their helpers out of the midst of Sheol. They have come down. They lie still the uncircumcised, slain by the sword. In other words, when Egypt is condemned to Sheol, to the realms of the dead, the underworld, all the other nations are going to be there already to greet them. Verse 22 says Assyria is there and all her company. Verse 24, or, yeah, verse 24 says Elam is there and all her multitude around her grave. Verse 26, Meshech Tubal is there and all her multitude. Verse 29, Edom is there, her kings and all her princes. Verse 30, the princes of the north are there, all of them and all the Sidonians. Then we pick up in verse 31 to 32, the last of the chapter. 
When Pharaoh sees them, he will be comforted for all his multitude. Pharaoh and all his army slain by the sword, declares the Lord God. For I spread terror in the land of the living, and he shall be laid to rest among the uncircumcised. With those who are slain by the sword, Pharaoh and all his multitude, declares the Lord God. I want you to remember something we brought up last fall, and I keep repeating it because it's important to remember that the Bible, like chapters 25 to 32, these chapters were not written to me, but they were written for me. See, when we read a passage like of Scripture, the first question that we tend to ask ourselves just out of habit is, what does this passage mean to me? But the question we should be asking is, what does this passage mean? Period. Or question. And that should lead us to another question. What does this passage say about God? After walking through eight chapters today of God's judgment on, multitude, on, a multi, on multiple pagan nations, agents of chaos against Israel and the plans of God, what do we learn about God? We learn that God has no equal in heaven or earth or under the earth, right? We learn that God will not be mocked, nor will his plans for his people be sidetracked by anyone in heaven or on earth or even under the earth. Amen? And now the question that we get to ask ourselves or can ask ourselves after we answer those questions is this. After 32 chapters so far in the book of Ezekiel, why would we ever give our loyalty to anything or anyone other than Yahweh? Why? Why would we? Here's where I want you to take in a posture of worship before the Lord right now. So just kind of get yourself in a place because I'm going to ask you one more question. And so you might need to bow your head. You might need to close your Bible. You might need to put your hands up. Whatever you need to do to be in a position and a posture of worship right now. Here's the question. Where is my faith placed today? Where is my faith placed today? Is it in anything other than the God who is above all gods and nations? Is it in the provisions or blessings that the godless nation of Canada promises to provide? In whom do I trust for my health care? In whom do I trust or invest for my future? In whom do I depend for my daily bread? Is there anyone or anything right now that is competing for the Lord's place of authority and provision for your life? Ask yourself that question. And let's pause to talk to the Lord about it. Is there anyone or anything right now that is competing for the Lord's place of authority and provision in your life? People of God, listen. Canada, the United States, the West, 
truly a great place to live. But it still is a godless place. We are not a Christian nation. Neither is the United States. Neither is Europe. The world within the West, Canada and the U.S., promises us a lot. But there is a lot that it does to war against the people of God and our faith in God. Does it not? Every single day, there are things all over social media, the internet, television, newspaper, magazine, that war against the reality of God and His control over the nations. That pride will be brought down low. But we, the people of God, if we keep our faith in God alone, we will prevail. Mark my words. This is not a prophecy, but you just have to watch how things are going. I've been alive for over 50 years now. The world I live in today is, uh, the world I live in today is far wickeder than it was when I was first a child. You all know that. You all think that it might get better. It will not. It's going to get worse. So the only thing that we can have to reassure ourselves in these last days, and I believe the end is coming close, the only thing that we have is to make sure that our trust and our loyalty and our faith is in the God of heaven and earth and in his son Jesus. That's the only thing we have right now. Amen? And with that, we do not need to be afraid of the Antichrist, which we'll talk about in chapters 38 to 39. We do not need to be afraid of wars and rumors of wars. We do not need to be afraid of the devil. He is a defeated foe. We just read about it today. We will walk on him as if we're walking on the ground. He is a done deal. He's finished in God's economy. He will not recover. And neither will the nations that oppose God. Let us be on the winning side. Put your faith in God, my friends.